Are you tired of hearing people complain about the world and ready to own the responsibility to make the world a better place? Hey, my name is Brent Simpson and welcome to this episode of Creating the Future. I believe that within each of us is a yearning to make the world a better place. So let's work together and make that desire a reality. My hope is that today's conversation inspires you as you endeavor to create the future. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Creating the Future. Uh, I know it's been a few weeks since uh, we have been live and putting out these podcasts, but we do uh, plan to get back into a rhythm again with podcasts. Uh, you know, on a personal note, uh, I started a doctor degree and, you know, there's just a lot of work involved in that. And so creating the space for rhythm within that and, uh, and then trying to get some guests too. And if any of you have great guests that you think, oh, we should have them on the show, uh, do me a favor and send over a link to them or something like that. Email me and let me know. And we'd love to have some different people on the show as well that you might be able to recommend. Uh, but today we have somebody very special. We have Angel Everett with us and Angel has such a cool testimony of a person who's dealing with the imposter syndrome through much of her life, through a providential uh, way. She ends up in Harvard Law School. You're gonna love this story. And then what she's doing now to help other people now that she's graduated and kind of moved uh, beyond that, what she's doing now to help other students as they go into law school. So I hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Angel Everett. Hey, everybody. Super excited to come to you with this episode of Creating the Future uh, with an amazing guest today, uh, Angel Everett Esquire. And uh, you get to hear her truly miraculous story of what God's been doing in her life and how uh, she's been led to go into law school and even what she's doing now, helping a lot of other students as they enter law school or advanced degrees. And so, uh, Angel, welcome to Creating the Future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, super excited. I, I got to um, talk with you for I don't know, it was a while, a few weeks ago, and I uh, got to hear your story a little bit, and then you came and dropped off your book, and I got to read the beginning of that, and uh, it's kind of one of those stories that I think everybody needs to hear. It's, it's beautiful in nature. At the same time, I think you see the, the web of God being uh, sewed all the way through your story, which I think is beautiful. So if it's okay with you, let's just start at the beginning and uh, reading your story. So you were kind of uh, designated as a gifted child in the early years but you didn't necessarily accept that uh, in your own mind. So, so you, you share your story uh, from there. That's funny that you started with that because I, I kind of forgot about that part. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book like three or four years ago, so it's funny. But um, yeah, my kindergarten teacher, so the story goes, which I actually kind of remember it, told my mom that I should get tested for gifted. But even though I got tested and so I passed, you know, a standardized um, yeah. objective test, I still, looking back, I didn't know it was the imposter syndrome, but yeah, I just yeah. always felt like, okay, now you're in the gifted program. Now you have to prove that you really are gifted. So I was the kid, like nerdy, mm -hmm. but because I felt like I had to keep up with everybody else. Like, yeah they were going to find out that like I wasn't really gifted. And then there's also like an economic component to it, socioeconomic, because typically people in gifted were middle income. Right. But whereas we weren't single parent home. I hate using that phrase because it's like you use it so much to it's like yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah. like it doesn't mean a lot. But yeah, it was rough. And um, yeah, so I felt like 
and even like little things like the kids in the gifted program mm-hmm. would bring their lunch to school and like these really nice lunch boxes. Like I remember that was like a big deal for me that I got free lunch. Yep. <laughs> um, whereas all the other gifted kids like brought their lunch. So yeah. anyway, yeah, there was just always this need to keep up and to the, if you weren't discerning, which I mm-hmm. think God had it hid for on purpose, yeah. you would just think, oh, she's just a good, a good girl. She likes to study. She likes to make sure she does her homework. But looking back, and I had no idea of it then, it was the imposter syndrome, me yeah. feeling like I had to do extra work to keep up with other people because they were really the gifted ones. They were the smart ones. And I just got kind of funneled mm-hmm. into this program. So I forgot yeah. what your question was. I just no, no. I was just asking about on the gifted, gifted program part. in the beginning, and and I think that's beautiful because right. you know as leaders, we really sometimes forget the impact that we have on young lives and the things we speak over them. And you're talking about a kindergarten teacher that saw something in you and was able to speak something in you that you know really helped create your future and and send you in a certain direction. And uh, I think teachers, maybe more than the average leader, need a gift of discernment of how to pull out the gifts that God's placed inside of children, uh, you know, as they grow up and leaders have that ability to speak things that, that plant seeds that grow out of young lives. You, you talk about, I thought this was a, a funny term. You talk about smart police and you actually start the book uh, talking about the smart police coming into your house and, and you were devastated and all this. So, so what are the smart police? What does that mean to you? So when I started, when I sat down to write the book, all I knew was that I, so I wrote the book after law school, after I left Harvard Law. All I knew was that I just had this epiphany, we Christians call it a revelation, Right. that this thing, this feeling that I suddenly was more aware of at Harvard Law really had been following me since I was like in first grade. Um, and so I just knew I had to say, the imposter syndrome is real yeah, and it's been following me. It's been haunting me for a long time and I'm just now getting delivered again. Mm. I'm using my Christian lingo right. there, but, um, and I, and I, I couldn't say it like that because nobody would believe me. I didn't feel like, I feel like it would, it would have just been, Oh, that's it's in your head, you know, just overcome it, just ignore it. But I wanted to send a message that, it was more than just my thoughts. Like it's an actual yeah. Yeah. Uh, principality. Yeah. So I just, just got creative and I called it the smart police. Like, I don't know. There's like, no, I don't have like a profound answer other than yeah. honestly, as I wrote the book, God was revealing gifts to me, like mm. the gift of creative writing, which I, I had no idea, no idea I had until I was like, 27, 26 yeah. or 27 when I book. But um, yeah, it was just, it was just an idea popped in my head of like, how can I convey this message of something, of something always haunting you to catch you, mm-hmm. to catch you doing wrong. And the right. wrong thing is being smart. So I was right. just like, well, that's what do the... people typically associate being caught with either a yeah. parent or yeah. authority? Okay, I'll go with the police. So <laughs> that's all. Yeah, they say like one out of every three people deal with the imposter syndrome and it's that feeling of not being good enough and that feeling of of uh, uh, being found out for not being good enough. It's like I'm the imposter in the room. 
And what's really funny about this, and I think you're a living example of this, is that the people that experience the imposter syndrome the most are often the most successful people because they're still trying to prove to the world and to everybody else and to themselves that they belong in the room. So they end up a lot of times being the CV, the CEOs and the people that run these high uh, you know, organizations and uh, they end up being Harvard graduates, right? Because they're still trying to prove to themselves in the world that they belong there. And, uh, and so it actually ends up uh, you know, kind of a blessing in disguise, although it doesn't feel like it for sure. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. So, so, all right. So you're young, you're dealing with the imposter syndrome. This is going to be something that carries on through the remainder of this story, the imposter syndrome, but all right. So you graduate high school, you're moving through middle school, high school, and then you go to college where and how? The university of Alabama. Roll Tide. We just had to work that in somehow. Yeah. (laughs) Roll Tide. That was the hand of God. Like, it's just so amazing as you talked about like the web of God, it just blows my mind. I'm 31 now, 15 going on 31 because I look super, super young. But <laughs> I didn't even notice. I'm like, that was God. That was God. That was God until now that I'm 31. Anyway, I was 18 uh, in my senior year. I thought I was going to go to the University of Miami. Oh, Lord, no. I got, <laughs> I got accepted into <laughs> UM. But it's a private school. And I had no concept of, like, money. <laughs> so I was like, I'm smart. I'm going to go. Yeah. But then, and, and then they gave me a scholarship. And I was like, I got a scholarship. But then it was, like, also a bill attached of, like, $30,000. And I was like, so anyway, to make a long story short, I was just, it was just a regular day at school. And, um. a a recruiter I didn't know it was a recruiter I just knew a man it was a black man with the um he had on the white polo and the a like superficial a a UA recruiter came and was just like we want you we'll give you a a tuition full ride um uh, an apartment uh, a stipend and then a laptop and money to study abroad when I said laptop I was like, <laughs> that's what got you. That's what got me, which is crazy. But um, yeah, so that's how UA happened. And, um, yeah. and you got a, it was a full ride academic scholarship, right? Full ride academic scholarship. Yeah. So, yeah. so this overachieving imposter syndrome had, had helped you through school, so to speak, that made you obviously one of the very best students. And so then you spent what, four years at Alabama and got a degree? Yep. Four years at Alabama. I double majored in international relations in Spanish. I thought I was going to be a diplomat. Yeah. And uh, no. <laughs> I don't even know if you can, you might want to edit this part out, but so one summer, it was a summer before my senior year at UA, I got into like this summer boot camp for people who were into foreign affairs, who were going yeah. to be like foreign service officers and diplomats. Mm-hmm. It was at Princeton. Um, boot camp like rigorous like and and the other students who were there seemed really into this Mm -hmm. like really into foreign like international affairs whereas me I don't know it was just another revelatory moment where I was like I really don't care what's going on in China right now (laughs) like I care but it's not like I can't tell you like at this moment like Right, exactly. So what's funny is at that boot camp, they were warning people like, do not go to law school. Like that was one of the themes. They were like, don't go to law school because, you know, people interested in like political science and linguistics, you know, the more, Mm -hmm. what's the word, Uh, 
liberal artsy people tend to like go to law school. They're like, don't go, you'll get sucked into um, corporate America. You say you're going for this passion. You say you're going because you just want to learn the law so that you can be in politics. And then you get to a big law firm job. You're making, you know, 200,000 a year and you forget about your passion. Don't go to law school. And I was like, I don't like this, so I'm going to go to law school. So I, I switched it up my senior year at UA and decided that law school was the route for me. Yeah, and, then, and then it sounds like uh, through a, uh, maybe it's just God leading your heart. I don't know how you want to word that, but uh, so you kind of got infatuated with Harvard because there's lots of law schools all yeah. over the world that you could go to, but it seemed like you kind of really, really desired to go to Harvard more than the average student might. Yeah, I don't even know. I think what happened, so much happened, actually. So at UA, I had a Mm 4.0, but it wasn't, it sounds so like cliche, but I didn't like recognize how amazing that was. It was just like, I have to prove to people that I'm deserving of this scholarship. Um, And I went, I met with a professor who was over the Honors College for the honors program, again, in the honors program, because I have to prove like, this is what I do. This is the group that I'm supposed to be in. And I met with him. He was over like, basically like this very like, you know, each school has its like elite group of students. So he was over that group of students. And um, he said to me, he, he was a lawyer. He went to, he attended Yale Law School and he, and his family was very, his, his dad was like a Supreme Court justice at one point in time, like very like, renowned and he said I was sitting in his office and he said to me because I wanted to talk about going to law school and he said to me um you have a 4.0 at the university at a major state university and I've never met you like like it was just so like profound to him and like ridiculous that I wasn't I don't know so for me when he said that to me it was just like it's a big deal. Like I am in the top percentage. And so I just had a thought like, well, if I'm in the top, I never thought I could get into Harvard from high school, Mm -hmm. but college is a step up. So if I'm in the top at a major state university, maybe I could barely make it into Harvard law. And so that was that train of thought there. And so I very like awkwardly, just like I'm sitting in front of my computer now, I just said an awkward prayer, like, okay, God, please get me into Harvard Law School. Very awkward, very quick. I don't even think I like had, I know I didn't have as much faith then as I do now. I mean, I was raised in a church, but you know, I got saved when I was in seventh grade, but I really was. We we used to get, you know, you had to get saved every Friday night. (laughs) Right. Right. But But I really did. I really did make a like and a conscious effort to live for God in seventh grade, but still like my faith wasn't, it was very much like he might hear it. He might not. We'll see what happens. And so that's the prayer that I prayed, but then I started to work towards it. Yes. Faith without works is dead, but my work was more so God's not going to do it. So let me try to get myself in. And so, yeah, I started preparing, taking the LSAT, you know, doing everything. Yeah, well, that let's go there. there. But, for, but first, I want to just point this out because I think, again, we're seeing this pattern. So you don't feel good enough. Um, you know, you're graduating from a, with a 4.0 from Alabama. Um, and at the exact same moment, you don't feel good enough. You feel like, if I'm understanding you correctly from reading your book, 
that it's only because you're a hard worker, that you're not really that smart. You're not really that great. You just, you're just a hard worker and that's how you get in these honors classes. And that's how you end up with the 4.0. But yet once again, we're seeing where this, this professor, this um, elder, so to speak, this person that would oversee you speak something into your life. That's going to once again, turn it in this, you know, yeah. pretty cool direction. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. So it sounds like, yeah. uh, you know, you worked your butt off for your uh, LSAT, uh, the, the law SAT. Is that what that would be, LSAT? Right, the law school admissions test. Yep, pretty much. Yeah, and, and so you yeah. got to get into Harvard, and, uh, and you pretty much thought it was all about that. So talk about that real fast. So getting the steps, now you want to go to Harvard, the steps of actually going through the process and fighting through the process, because I'm yeah. sure many people want to go to Harvard but don't get in. So what was that like for you? I don't even know where to start. So also another thing I thought that Harvard wouldn't just want me and my 4.0 mm-hmm. was I had to put something else on my resume, which was Teach for America. So I had a job. Right. I'm sorry, I had a job lined up with the Defense Intelligence Agency, but then TFA, Teach for America, came to campus and were recruiting. And so I was like, like everybody knows it's a prestigious thing to do. It's very controversial yeah. for me to say that. I have to put that plug in here because there's this, which you shouldn't just do it for the resume. You should do it because you're, yeah. you care about the kids. You care about the issue of the achievement gap. Um, but at the same time, I needed a job. And I know I knew that Teach for America is a very prestigious program. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, it's very controversial. And I'm just going to say it bluntly that it, the critique is that you're building your career off of someone's poverty, off of the deficit that children of color Mm. are suffering in these very low income communities. So I have to say that, but the reality was I knew TFA was a prestigious program and I, and I was passionate about education and closing the achievement gap. So I thought that TFA would be that thing that made me worthy of Harvard. So I did TFA in Jacksonville, Florida. Mm -hmm. Hot mess. Like (laughs) that was probably the first wilderness season. All I can say I don't want to go into a deep critique of Teach for America, but I had no idea what I was doing. And one of the critiques of TFA is that teachers spend, you know, four years of education getting a degree to learn how to do this. Whereas we went to like a five week boot camp (laughs) and throw us and not doing a five week boot camp and then being thrown into any school would be horrendous, but doing a five week boot camp and throwing us into the lowest performing schools in the nation. So it was terrible to make a long story short. And I love the kids. I still have relationships with some of their parents Mm -hmm. um, and with the kids, but it wasn't, it wasn't just the kids. It was, I didn't know classroom management. I was like young, young, like 22. Mm. Um, It was terrible. I'll say my hair fell out. I lost a bunch of weight. I was having panic attacks every night. Like literally I couldn't breathe. Um, I had, I went to the doctor. I was on the verge of a heart attack. It was terrible. So to make a long story short, I spent maybe like until December. So TFA is supposed to be two years. Um, I went from August to December and I came home like just a wreck, a hot mess. Um, I felt like God didn't like me anymore. (laughs) Granted, he didn't, he's not the one who said, now it's clear to me. He's not the one who said, you have to do TFA to get into Harvard. I was the one who said, oh, God promised me Harvard. So I have to do TFA. Oh, we skipped 
we skipped how I got that promise. But um, yeah. Yeah. So that was TFA. So I'm back home in Tampa. Like I'm not going to go to Harvard because yeah. I'm not good enough. I couldn't finish TFA. And then um, that's when God wrecked my life again. I got another, he spoke to me very, very clearly in a church setting and was like, basically saying, what did I say? You're going to Harvard. Mm. And so, Well, let's back up then right before TFA when God originally said it. And I think you were at a lunch with your uh, godmother, your Matrina, um, yeah. and tell that quick snippet of a story. This is kind of the original right. time, I guess, God, you had it in so, your heart to go there, but this mm-hmm. is where God kind of validated that and said, you're going to go there. Yeah, before, so before Teach for America, before Teach for America, but after I prayed the, so after I prayed the awkward prayer in front of my computer at the University of Alabama, I was back home and um, you know how families have um uh, dinner, lunch after church, I was at my madrina's house, which is um, Spanish for godmother. And um, well, okay, let me go back earlier to during the service, I was bawling, crying, because you know, just transition is hard. So I knew I was no longer at the University of Alabama, which I was used to the routine of going to school, getting a break, summer break, going back to school, spring break, going back to school. And I had no idea where my life was going. So I was bawling in church and she came up behind me and placed her hand on me. And I'm sure she was praying. I couldn't hear what she was saying. But then all of a sudden she started like what we in the black church call getting happy. Right. Um, just like screaming and like, you know, going crazy and stuff. And I was just like, she's crazy because I am broken and hurt right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the end of that. She rubbed my back and that was that. And then we're eating. <laughs> she said like that, I was just crying and then she didn't give me the word right there in church. And so we're eating and um, I like pass her a chicken or she passed me a chicken and she announced it to the, announces to the table, guys, Angel's going to Harvard. And I was like, <laughs> mind you, I knew I had prayed that prayer, you know, in my dorm room alone but I had never ever told anyone and so I was just kind of like and she was like no I heard it so clear I heard it so clear today I heard as clear as day it said she's going to Harvard I heard the Lord and I was like oh okay and so (laughs) all these barrage of questions come like well when are you what what are you going to do when you're applying what are you majoring in and I'm like y'all like I just found this out myself like <laughs> I don't know. So that was, you know, when God spoke to me to go. And so after that, after God confirmed it for me, like for me, that was the ignition. Well, not the ignition, the um, the gas to be like, yeah, like you got to go for this. And so that's when I decided like, yeah, I got to do Teach for America. That's God said, I'm going to go to Harvard. So I got to do Teach for America. Do Teach for America. That was terrible. <laughs> and then um, he reminded me, what did I say? And so that's like my, that was like my biggest miracle story to date, Hmm. Um, him confirming his word. And then obviously me being accepted, but yeah. Well, let's go ahead and go there now. So you, uh, you did teach for America for, you know, a little while, and then you're now applying for Harvard, going through the LSATs, going through everything, trying to get admittance into Harvard, which is obviously, obviously very difficult and incredibly intimidating. I'm sure I don't have the guts to even try to go to Harvard. (laughs) Um, And so I know that's got to be incredibly intimidating. Um, And so what was the short version of how you eventually do get into Harvard? Harvard law law school. 
<sighs> short I will say there were many dream killers along the way so there's mm-hmm. an entire chapter yeah. called beware of dream killers and I've actually heard your testimony before as far as when you were building a rise and people thought you were crazy about mm-hmm. like yeah. I forget your words exactly but yeah it's the same story like people thought I was crazy people pretty much told me that's not going to happen. And so through that experience, God was still, I didn't even know. It's like, you don't even know the lesson until the lesson is over. God was teaching me to trust my word, not what people say. So that's the short version of it. People thought I was crazy. Um, And then it just, I applied. I mean, one thing about Harvard Law is they are very transparent about what the the submission requirements are. Mm The other part as far as where my business comes in is people don't know what to put in the personal statement, but I gave them everything they wanted, the personal statement, the resume, my LSAT score and a prayer. And um, I submitted it and it was just like any other day I was at work and um, I got a phone call. Well, they they also interviewed me, but after the interview, I got a phone call and um, she was just like, you know, welcome to Harvard. And I was like, oh my God. And she was like, but promise me one thing, you know, I forgot exactly how, how she said it. I remembered it when I wrote the book four years ago, but basically she warned me. She was like, but remember when you get here, know that you belong. Mm. So I must've said something in the interview, mm. Yeah, which is crazy. Cause I was like, so unaware of the imposter syndrome until like yeah. my last year at Harvard law. So I must've said something and she was just like, remember you you belong here. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. Okay. Oh, like still in the high not realizing that that was a foreshadowing of what was to come. All right. So just out of curiosity, what was the time frame from your, your godmother's uh, prophecy over you basically and saying that to the time you were actually accepted? Was that like two years, one year? Mm-hmm. I think it was like two years. Yeah. Two, years. two years. All right. So if getting accepted into Harvard is hard, actually passing the classes and being a part of Harvard has got to be incredibly hard, which I know is a big part of your story. It's a big part of why you wrote the book. And here you are a uh, young black lady, uh, female black in a predominantly white, probably male environment, I would guess. I'll let you speak to that. Um, And so there's got to be intimidation just all over the place. And so, uh, you know, as we kind of wrap up kind of the story of the book, so to speak, just, just tell us your experience at Harvard and, and how, you know, you were able to make it through your years there. So much. So the story that I always tell is the outline because it's so, it's a fundamental part of the law school experience. Like if you know any lawyer, every lawyer knows about an outline. Mm-hmm. And so an outline, well, let me, before I tell you what an outline is, okay, when I first get to Harvard, they use um, the Socratic method, which is method of teaching, cold calls. You know, you are supposed to have read the case, all the cases, all 300 pages of them. Mind you, you have four classes. So you're, that's why law school is hard. You're reading yeah. an ungodly amount <laughs> of cases. And so you're supposed to have read and then you get to class and you're called on it. You'll be sitting there and they'll say, what do you think about that, Mr. Mr. Simpson? What do you think about that? Or not, what do you think about it? Because that can be kind of easy. You just give your opinion. But what did the case say about this? What was the judge's legal reasoning? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the facts of the case? And you're, you should be able to recall it. Um, very intimidating atmosphere. The actual, 
if the auditorium is like a u-shape anyway large auditorium won't get into that but um so yeah people would just know the answers like to the most obscure facts and like be able to like their recitation was always on point and for me I would funk like I my, when I would get called I would just go blank you know I guess it's fight or flight or anxiety I do struggle with anxiety um and so my mind would go blank um I would shake I would get nervous and I couldn't remember and it literally felt like in my mind I was flipping through the 500 pages that I read that night and it was crazy to me that you wanted me to recall Right. This one detail or this one, you know, line of reasoning from the judge. And so from my perspective, I was like, oh, well, this is, you know, God kept encouraging me that, you know, you belong there. You are a genius. You are competent. But I'm like, and it's a lesson in trusting God's voice. But I'm like, God, you're not a liar. However, <laughs> I know you see what's going on. Come to find out, I'm walking down the hallway and someone goes, hey, you got an outline for civil procedure? And I'm like, uh-huh, an outline. And I'm like, a what? You know, the outline is the summary of all the cases. It, it, it has every case that that professor is going to talk about. It has all the facts. You know, some of the outlines are so um, detailed that they even have the joke that the professor tells every year. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they give me um, basically access to and this is a whole underground world, like different student orgs have outline banks. And so they get me an outline to this one class. And I'm like, God was right. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was I was amazed, but I was also angry because it just felt like everyone else had like the secret this secret piece of paper and I felt like a dummy and I'm like, no, nobody can recall the minute detail from the thousands of pages we've read over the week. A whole system has been developed and you guys just knew about it and I didn't. And so that was the first like convicting moment of like, God was right. I was listening to the imposter syndrome. So (laughs) there were many of those like examples of things like I just I didn't know, and it and it sounds so trivial, but the outline, the fact that I didn't know about outlines, yeah. and ask any lawyer, it's such a basic fundamental component of the law school experience. And mm-hmm. so that's why I wrote the book, and that's why I do what I do to unveil all of these very basic secrets. It's not a big deal if you just tell me, get an outline, mm-hmm. um, but if you don't know, then it's a living hell for you to be, to be yeah. frank, because you're have an anxiety attack walking into class because you don't know if you're going to get called and be the one that's like, uh, 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 uh. So um, I don't know if that answered your would, question. Would that be kind of like, um, so right now I'm, I'm uh, in a doctorate program, earning a doctorate, and it's quite frustrating that professors at that level don't actually teach right. um, because whatever, but they don't actually teach. So you're supposed to just figure everything out yourself. And it's, I guess it's like um, making sure you have the tenacity and grit to figure it out, um, which would be so much easier if they would just tell you, but they don't tell you anything and they mark things wrong, but don't tell you why it's marked wrong. And you're supposed to figure out why it's marked wrong. And it's like, oh my gosh, we could save so much time if you would just tell me why this is wrong, but you won't tell me. Is it kind of like in that same vein? I mean, going to Harvard obviously is an elite school. Yeah, I, it felt like that. I don't know the theory behind 
why it was like that. They are getting a little better now. So for instance, Harvard recently, they're starting um, a, a program called Zero L to like, because they admit it, like we, I guess there's been multiple complaints, but they admit it like that the type of student that's coming that we're accepting now, the demographics are changing. Mm -hmm. um, so actually they didn't say it like that, but yeah. <laughs> um, so I think there is more of an ear to it now. So I don't know the theory, but I do know one of the things that baffled me was that's why I was so successful to this point is because the teacher would cheat teach. I would listen. I take notes. I learn. I study it. I, you know, sometimes regurgitate. That's, you know, that's the bottom level of learning. But even like, like having the knowledge and then being able to synthesize and, and, and analyze and then giving it back to you according to your rubric. Like, that's why I'm here successful. But then all of a sudden, like the rubric bricks hidden. Yeah. And like you it that was that part of it is frustrating and then something else you said as far as like you know you're supposed to figure it out fair but the reality is is when you get to any any even you i think you told me that you were a first generation college student yep but yeah the problem is the, the people who have had parents who've done this they're not just trying to figure it out the parents are telling them right. or someone in their community is telling them so really it disadvantages those who don't have anyone to go to. So it's not, someone told me, oh, don't feel like that because everybody's trying to figure it out. Everybody feels lost. Yeah, but there's levels to it. Like I feel more lost than you, so. Is it safe to say the first generation always feels lost? It's always that first generation that has to figure it out and then hopefully they can pass off some knowledge and understanding to the generations behind them. Is that the way? I'm sorry, say that again? So would you say like the first generation of college student, whoever does it first, so to speak, that, that pioneer always has to blaze the trail. So they have the harder work. Um, and then, you know, so they can help the generations behind them, but the first yeah. generation is always going to have the struggle. So, you know, when you have a child one day and they go to law school, you're going to say, Hey, you really need this outline. And I guess right. the second part of that question is, is that why you think other people had the outline or the understanding of the outline that you'd never heard of just because of, you know, their background and what they had heard and, you know, relatives or whoever that had been to college before them? Yes, I do think, yes, <laughs> I do think that. Um, to be fair, some people, so there are some people who, who had relatives who had been, you know, to law school, but then there's also those who had been in, they have like, what do you call pipeline programs? Mm -hmm. So for instance, okay, there like are certain programs. Would that be like a pre-law? Exactly, exactly. And so I didn't do a pre-law program. Um, so if you didn't do a pre-law program or you didn't have a relative, yeah. it was just kind of like, yeah, sucks to be <laughs> in law school. Um, yeah, so much to say, but yeah. Yeah. All right. So basically you did graduate from, from Harvard Law and uh, uh, that's why you got Esquire after your name now. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, but at the same time, I think there was a lot of things that you had to learn through the hard, the hard road, so to speak. And you are that pioneer who pioneered the path first and whoever goes first always has to blaze the trail. They always have mm -hmm. the hardest work, uh, which is, I understand it, probably why you wrote uh, the book, Harvard and Hardship, uh, because you have blazed the trail and you don't uh, want other people to have to blaze the same trail that you blazed. 
And so why not assist them on the journey going to law school or this kind of place and, and teach them the things that nobody told you, right? Is that, is that an accurate assumption or, or suggestion? That is the perfect quintessential summary of why I do what I do. Exactly. Yeah. Because I feel like, to be fair, I don't, I know I wasn't the only one at Harvard Law who was the first or the, the only right. Um, first, whatever that means. So my mom did, she does have an advanced degree, but the reality is being somewhere like Harvard is, is just different. Sorry. That's going to be a whole nother level. Yeah. So, so first in that route and in that regard, I don't feel like I was, I don't feel like I was long, alone in how I was feeling, but because it's somewhere like Harvard Law, it takes a lot of, no one wants to be vulnerable and say, I don't know what's going on or say, I didn't know what I was going on, going on. Everybody has a poker face. Yeah. Everybody has a poker face to the point where you feel crazy um, in admitting that we, I feel lost. And, yeah. and so I was that student who had raised my hand and asked the question. Mm-hmm. And then people come up, up to me and be like, oh my God, thank you so much. And so I think I started to have like an attitude my like latter year because one, one lady came up to me and she was like, you have like an attitude when you raise your hand because I, I know what's going on. Like no one wants to say, what do you mean by that? So I'd be like, what is blah, 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 blah. So that's, a, <laughs> that's um, one of the later chapters in the book, I, 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 it's very tongue in cheek, but I'm giving advice on how to be successful in law school. And one thing that I say is don't ask fundamental questions. So it's like an unwritten rule, very tongue in cheek, but no fundamental questions. So no, what is blah, blah, blah? Who is blah, blah, blah? What do you mean by blah, blah, blah? Just ask very like high level, high level, theoretical, vague, like cerebral <laughs> questions um ask, ask questions you can't google <laughs> right so um i forgot why i started talking about that but well yeah oh yeah i was saying i don't think i'm the only one who uh who felt that way i just am one of the few who, who decided to go back and make it easier and let people know you're not the only one who feels dumb and by the way, those dumb questions that you have, here are the answers to right. them. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's probably, I would imagine, true, too, of any law school, but especially Harvard Law School. Uh, an attorney by stereotype, by nature, is going to be um, uh, not emotional, very intellectual. And so they're not going to show their emotions a lot of times in the classroom either. So if they're frustrated or if they're anxious or if they're stressed out over this, they're probably not showing it as much either, which can be frustrating when you do feel it and you feel like you're the only one in the room that's feeling it while they may be feeling it, but you know, it's just different kind of career. So Angel, so you wrote the book, Harvard and Hardship, A Beginner's Guide to College and Law School. So talk about now that you've graduated, you wrote the book, what are you doing now? Like, where does the book go? How do you, um, uh, like, like, what is your, your, what are you doing now? Right. So I started, I got on YouTube to promote the book and tell people about the book, which, you know, that did get sales, but it also got people asking me, well, help me to get into law school. So I launched a consulting business in 2017. So I help people write their, so for instance, to get into law school, you have to write a personal statement. You can or it's not required, but some people write a diversity statement. You have to submit your resume. So just a consulting business where I'm advising people um, how how to do these admissions 
requirements. And I, I mentioned earlier in the interview, while writing the book, God unveiled, unveiled to me a gift of writing that I was completely yeah. clueless that I had, which is, yeah. it blows my mind, completely clueless until my late twenties. So I kind of use that skill in creating these admissions documents. So I do that. Um, and then my most recent project that I launched this summer was pre-law summer school. Okay. So basically it's a course before you get to law school that teaches you all the basic things that you need to know to be successful. So there's a, there's 10 modules. There's an entire module on outlines, just very basic knowledge. And I'm like, why didn't anyone t- tell me this? This would have been a lot easier. So it starts with, um, Anyway, it, 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 the pre-law summer school in, includes what you need to know in law school all the way through the bar. Like this imposter syndrome and like me, like not knowing secrets continued all the way until I took the bar. I'm like, why didn't someone tell me this about the bar? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my latest project, which is ongoing. How but did, I'm still consulting as well. So. Yeah. How did, uh, 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 and, and maybe, I don't know if you want to try to answer this or not, but how have you overcome the imposter syndrome? That's a huge part of your story, even well before you identified what it is, but how have you overcome the imposter syndrome? I think it's a matter of overcoming it. Yeah, I actually almost corrected myself as I was talking. I was like, you really <laughs> overcome it probably all the way, but overcoming it, yeah. Yeah, no, but so I end the book and this was a lesson to me. I didn't know. I was like, God, just deliver me. Mm-hmm. But I end the book, um, so so I, the book, I created this character. Her name is the imposter syndrome, and she just kind of follows me throughout. But at the last chapter, it's called A Defeated Foe. Mm. When she like leaves this menacing like note, and she whispers to me, I'll be back. And then I say, but I'll know how to deal with you. Mm. And what I meant by that is, scriptures like i know it sounds super fundamental and basic but prayer and reading the word and reminding myself what god has to say about me Mm -hmm. fasting um yeah just back to the basics of faith it's not easy and it's a fight and it's and it's always very subtle Mm -hmm. it's never like i have a loud thought that says you are dumb what are you doing it's always very subtle like oh maybe i shouldn't have said that like that Oh, I don't, so, but, but when it is revealed, um, yeah, it just, it's back to the basics of scripture yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and quoting out scripture. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I've, I've heard different people and some of them are kind of funny of how they deal with the imposter syndrome. I've heard a lot of people give their imposter a name, like you were kind of referring to. And I've heard some people give them funny names and give them funny voices. So it's like, okay, you can say whatever you're saying, but you hear it in the voice of Donald Duck or whatever, you know what I mean? That's good. A lot of funny things like that too. So, that's good. all right, Angel. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you, somebody wants to, um, you know, to use you as a consultant or get into a, a college like this, like, like how do they get a hold of you? Um, how, how would they reach out? Sure. So if you go to www.harvardandhardshipllc.com, there's currently a waiting list, but um, I'm going to start accepting clients again in October. So that would be the first route. Just get, get on the waiting list. 
Yeah. Or um, if you want free tips, <laughs> so I do release a lot of free content yeah. on YouTube and just go to YouTube and just type in Harvard and Hardship and subscribe and I'll pop up. There's a lot of, there's like hours of content there. And then sometimes I go live and just start answering questions. New chats. That's awesome. Thank well, you. Well, I love it. If somebody wants to get your book, how do they do that? That is on Amazon and Kindle. So again, just go to Harvard and Hardship. I'm sorry, go to Amazon or Kindle and type in Harvard and Hardship and I'll pop up. Okay. And it's Harvard and Hardship, A Beginner's Guide to College and Law by Angel Everett. Highly recommend the book, especially if you're going to law school. I think it'll be a huge blessing to you. And I think maybe my favorite part of this story uh, as I listen to it is one, you had somebody in early elementary kindergarten that's speaking over your life, an adult figure who's calling you higher, then coming out of college at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide, coming out of college, you have this person that's speaking in your life that's calling you higher. You have this, this godmother, your, your madrina, that is calling you higher. All these people around you calling you higher, and then you get to the place that right now you have a career where you get to speak into other people's lives and call them higher. And you get to be that person that's going, hey, you can do this. I can help you. Let me, let me, you know, lift you up, so to speak, when you can't lift yourself and walk you through the steps of getting into law school. And I think that is a, just an absolutely beautiful thing. I think that's the way the circle of life and the kingdom of God and all those kind of things. I think that's the way it should work. You know, we, we should help each other and we all become a much better place when we do that. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So Angel, thank you so much for being on Creating the Future. And uh, everybody who's listening or watching, I hope you um, jump out and get the book. And uh, if you know anybody going into law school, uh, find Angel online and she would uh, love to help them in that process. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and I especially hope it added value to you. If you enjoyed it, would you do me a favor and give us a five-star rating on your podcast provider? It really helps to get the word out. And of course, if you share this content with your friends, that would be great too. And until next time, I hope you continue creating a better future. I look forward to being with you again soon.